Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. JP Morgan bought almost all of First Republic's assets after that bank fell. Now... Rewind a little bit. Remember this banking crisis that the U.S. financial system was going through? Spooked a lot of people. We saw Silicon Valley Bank fail. We saw Signature Bank be taken over by regulators. Now we're seeing something similar from First Republic, which also found itself in dire straits after the Fed rapidly raised interest rates, and they had a bunch of bad stuff on their books. So we're going to talk about this. Uh, Jamie Dimon says, hey, this chapter of the banking crisis is over. We've stepped in. We've, we've got this thing. We've got it under control. Don't worry, everybody. But I don't know. It's, I don't know if everybody is fully on that page just yet. There could be more shoes to fall. But Jamie Dimon says, no, there's only so many banks, maybe three, that were doing this shady business, and we're going to be A-OK. So anyway, I'm going to toss this straight to Jen. What do you think? Do you think this phase of the banking crisis is indeed over, or do you think more stuff is about to happen? No. Imagine I said, yes, I think it's over. I think the two of you would just lambast me. It's worrying that Jamie Dimon is saying, you know, this is all over. It's all under control now with and with no other information to back that statement up. When I was reading this story, I just thought about, you know, how we're calling for more proof of reserves, more transparency when it comes to crypto and crypto exchanges. And it's becoming more and more uh, prevalent that we should be calling for the same thing in the traditional financial sector. I think that the banks and customers would really benefit from this. Uh, Wendy, I'm going to I'm gonna toss it off to you. I have more thoughts, but I saw you making... There we go. We have the tinfoil crown back. <laughs> what do you think is happening? So I actually talked about this very early in the morning. I think I made a TikTok at like 5 a.m. or whatever, when I, right when one of my team members sent me the story. So we knew that this bank was probably going to go down. They halted the stock trading for the volatility 
But you guys, I thought that traditional um, investment instruments or services and all that stuff, it's all regulated. It's all safe. There's no risk there. Like those products are safe. Anyways, I want to say the stock dropped like 18 or 30% one day. They halted trading. And then now JP Morgan, of course, is picking it up. JP Morgan is a big, big heavy hitter in the banking industry. So what I'm seeing is happening. I'm seeing a monopolization of the industry, which is very bad. We don't want a monopoly. The reason why we don't want a monopoly is because when you have a monopoly, that means less competition. When you have less competition, there's no fight to get your business as a customer because you're forced to go to one complete entity. There's going to be next to zero existing customer service. People are going to continue to have very poor experiences at the banks. And on top of it, we're essentially being forced to put our money into a JP Morgan bank, which maybe somebody doesn't want to use JP Morgan. So that's problematic. Also, again, this isn't a crypto failure. This is a banking failure. And on top of it, I really feel like the banking collapse is not done yet. So shout out to Jen. And I think we're going to see more of this happen. And it's just a push really to just continue to make people scared and cite panic and push a CBDC to come in. But luckily, luckily, we have this thing that was created a little bit over 10 years ago that allows people to actually have access to their hard money 24-7, 365. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? I think it starts with a B. I think it might be Bitcoin. And I think this is a nice little bit of tailwind for the Bitcoin narrative. You know, like Bitcoin has been having a good run of late. Things are kind of looking good in the Bitcoin markets. I think a lot of it is, again, people are looking for that flight to safety. Maybe gold isn't your thing. Maybe you have a little bit more risk tolerance. Maybe Bitcoin can be that thing that outlasts the banks in the long run. I do kind of agree with Wendy here, right? This consolidation that we're seeing in the wake of all these collapses is a bit scary, right? The idea that the regulators come in, say, hey, this, this, can, this can't happen any longer. And then, you know, JP Morgan is that first buyer who steps up, swoops up those assets on the cheap and continues on its merry way. No, that is a bit discouraging. You saw in this story that, you know, other stocks of uh, other sort of regional banks sort of are lower on this news. Markets may be thinking that some other regional banks could be next to follow. And that's something certainly to watch, despite Jamie Dimon trying to ease sort of frayed nerves out there in the markets. I think it is certainly a bit worrying. So I don't know, maybe Bitcoin continues to ride this narrative tailwind and continue to be that flight to safety that some people are certainly treating it as here and now as the banks sort of waver a little bit. I don't know, Jen, last word to you. Yeah, we're going to talk about it a little later in the show, but Balaji Srinivasan said that he's expecting a black swan event to hit the economy. (laughs) You know, when I read all of these opinions and I see what's happening in the banking sector and I think about Bitcoin, it still is a really sad and dire situation, right? There's a lot of people out there who are suffering because of inflation who are living paycheck to paycheck, who are trying to make ends meet. And Bitcoin might not necessarily be the solution to those people. Very volatile. The regulators are attacking on and off ramps. And so I, I just, oh, I read these stories and just have to take a, a deep sigh because I don't feel like we're going to get out of this anytime soon. Zach? Fed meeting later this week, also one to watch in terms of what happens to interest rates. So keep an eye on that for some major macroeconomic market moves. Tuesday's top story. Coinbase announced today that it was opening its offshore crypto derivatives exchange. If you remember, this was announced some weeks back. that They were going to be based in Bermuda, offering more exotic financial products than are currently (laughs) available in the U.S. We talked to Premier David Byrd about this just last week at Consensus. Also announced today, Gemini, the one by the Winklevibe twins, they're also launching an offshore derivatives platform, again, to escape the looming prospect of further regulatory crackdown. All these U.S. crypto exchanges are a bit miffed that they can't offer the services that the crypto world demands of them. 
So they're going elsewhere. They're going offshore. We're going to talk about it here on The Hash. Let me talk to, let me talk to uh, David. This phenomenon, what's going on? Is this to be expected? Uh, I, I think it's to be expected, but it's not clear to me exactly why we should have expected it. It's specifically, it's unclear whether this is a particularly real thing or if particularly in Coinbase's case, they might be doing a little bit of signaling for political gain because they are trying to make the case that the SEC's push recently and the alleged wider push to debank crypto companies in a sort of extrajudicial way is going to result in people moving important businesses offshore. And so here they are doing it, at least apparently. So they might be adding pressure to Gary Gensler and other regulators at the same time that they are genuinely opening up a a new um, revenue, not necessarily a totally new revenue opportunity, but a revenue safety valve, a backup that they will have in case things really go bad in the U.S. Yeah, a lot of politics and business uh, mixing up together here, I guess, is my assessment. Yeah, David, I agree with you. You know, Coinbase has been really public about trying to work with regulators. You know, they are registered in the U.S. They are a public company and still the regulators keep coming for them. I think this is definitely a political signal, but it's also them diversifying their business because they don't know what's going to happen, right? They have a Wells notice in front of them. They're not exactly sure what's going to happen next. And the fact that they continuously make public what's happening, I think I've said this before on the show, shows frustration. When we go over to Gemini, they're another company that's been really communicative with regulators, right? Then they were sued by the CFTC. They were charged by the SEC. And now they're doing the same thing. They're going overseas. I think it's interesting when we look at this and then we look at the Bermuda Premier who was on the hash last week, who's also taking to the public stage and saying, if you're a company like Coinbase, like Gemini, come to Bermuda. Our regulation is clear. It's very clear what you can and cannot do in our country. And so I think everyone is taking advantage of this like regulatory mess we have in the US right now. And it's kind of sad. I do wonder though, you know, if US citizens can access these products some way, shape or form if the SEC is going to overreach and try and do the same thing they're doing here in the U.S. regardless of where these products are set up. Wendy? Yeah, I wouldn't have a comment on that because I am a law-abiding citizen. I also pay all of my taxes, especially my crypto taxes. I actually overpaid the IRS for 2021, I believe. (laughs) Anyways, that's either here or there. Um, I do think that this was this is kind of a nothing burger to see big giants like Coinbase and Gemini kind of set up shop overseas. A very good friend of mine, Mark Moss, he's always said, he actually taught me this term, go where you're treated best. Why would a business stay in the United States of America when there's no type of like welcoming, there's no type of regulations, it's a very hostile environment to do business. So it makes, I mean, you guys have to understand too, and audience is that Coinbase and Gemini, they're businesses. They are probably some of the most compliant crypto service providers in the United States of America. They're consistently registering. They're consistently working with regulators, et cetera. Why would they, why would they just place all their bets that everything is going to get settled in the U.S. when it's clearly not right now? And even if it was, it's still going to take quite a bit of time for things to get absolutely sorted here because we have so much red tape and because of all the, the different types of entities you have to go through to get anything done. So I think this was a smart move business-wide. It sucks for U.S. retail sucks for people like me. It sucks for people like in my community. But at the same time, go where you are treated best. And hopefully the United States of America 
understands that, but I think we are too far gone for that. And I think it was Zach's hand that was up. Yeah, I wanted to you know focus on kind of the business line question. I think it makes a ton of sense, especially in this market, right? Like we're in a market where it's really the crypto diehards, it's the survivors who are here still, right? Who are using these exchanges. And these are people who love crazy stuff. They love Bitcoin perps. They love 5X leverage. And that's what Coinbase has long not been able to offer. So they're doing so by going offshore. You're seeing Gemini. They tried to do this in the US, I think dating back to 2020, but they ultimately uh, kind of revoked their own application under the understanding that it wasn't going to happen. So now they're saying, okay, well, this is what the diehards want. This is what the people in crypto winter are here for. It's not quite that time where people, new users are flooding onto these platforms to trade crypto. So you better be able to offer the products that the crowd are willing to toy with. And that's what Coinbase and Gemini are doing here at a time when they need to, you know, in, especially in Coinbase's case, show to stockholders that people are actually using this thing. But yeah. David, here are your thoughts. Let me squeeze in one last quick comment, which is there is a downside here. And I say this as a Coinbase user, which people who know my history might be surprised to learn, um, which is once you have an entity offshore, that does, at least in my mind, raise risks for the company in the United States. So as somebody who custodies a not large amount of money with Coinbase, I might be making more moves to not do that anymore um, because they now have this offshore entity, which does raise the possibility of activities going on outside of the purview of U.S. regulators and oversight. Um, and so that does raise some slight concerns. So I will just note that as a, down, a, a potential downside for the company, Zach. I like Jen's point before I throw it to her for the next story about whether or not if one user accesses this from the U.S. by way of VPN, Gary yep. Gensler is going to go get their asses. I'm very, that was a very good point. Anyway, you, Jen. You said the A word. <laughs> Sorry. These are Gary Gensler hands. You're He's just coming for you. <laughs> is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Wednesday's Top Story. Let's start off um, with a long-awaited launch of an L1 SWE, which, for those of you paying attention, is one of two blockchains that functions using the Move language. Basically, it was born out of Facebook's Libra stablecoin project. But anyway, we called in the first line a buzzy layer one project in this article that Liz, our Coindesk reporter, wrote about it. But it has not launched without controversy. It has a $2 billion valuation, a token um, that kind of has this like confusing distribution. I don't know who it went to, this um, sweet token. They didn't do an airdrop, which is something that's kind of the norm these days. Also, its speeds were slower than its main competitor um, called Aptos, another one of these Facebook, um, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, birth. I don't know. It came from Facebook. It's another one of those. It's kind of hard to explain how it, how it all comes together. But anyway... Yeah. Curious if you guys have any takes on this whole SWE thing. Mainnet launches are exciting. They're often rocky. There's been very few that have gone off without a hitch. I know Aptos also had some issues mm -hmm. at launch. Uh, but yeah, the idea here, I think, is that there's this new generation of more performant blockchains that court people with various programming languages that aren't Solidity and are obviously a bit more 
uh, friendly to Web2 developers. And that's sort of the pitch, right? And there's several chains out there that are making essentially the same pitch. And it's essentially that, hey, we're faster, we're better, and we can get devs from the broader world rather than just those Ethereum nerds who code in Solidity, right? Uh, Whether or not any of that will pan out is very much to be determined, right? I think Ethereum as the leading smart contract blockchain is looking pretty good. I mean, it has that critical mass of developers who are building stuff and launching stuff. But there are certainly these all L1s who are looking to get in on some of that euphoria and craziness that we saw during the last cycle with Solana and others, right? So SWE is certainly within that sort of cohort of chains that wants to be bigger and better. We saw some headlines that SWE is, you know, allegedly a Solana killer, as Solana was an Ethereum killer when it launched however many years ago. So there's certainly this jockeying out there for apps, for users, for developers. And mainnet really is that that go to market, that big, we are live now, let's do this thing. Certainly the horse race between SWE and Aptos is interesting. Uh, certainly the fact that they're both born out of the ashes of Libra is interesting. But it's really just going to come down to whether or not people show up and do stuff on this blockchain or whether this becomes another token that gets traded, flipped for a quick buck. I think a lot of people are speculating that that may be the case after this mainnet launch. And there's been obviously that jostling from Justin Sun and others to get in on this. But time is absolutely going to tell if any of these upstart chains have the staying power that we've seen from Ethereum, which is still early, still nascent. You know, there's not a ton of on-chain dApp activity on that chain even. So uh, certainly these upstarts are, are trying to position themselves for that next sort of bull cycle where people enter the space and do stuff. But hey, it's one to watch. It's probably too early to say uh, what the mainnet launch is going to foretell for SWE and their team. But Jan, I'll toss it to you. You know, I looked at this story through a bittersweet lens, right? I thought about all the layoffs we've been talking about recently, a lot of them coming from Meta. And it made me a little bit exciting to, to see what direction all of this new talent that's entering the job market is going to do. We're talking about these two rival blockchains, both have ex-Meta employees working on them, both trying to solve a problem that's been one the industry has faced for a really long time. You know, how do we get faster, cheaper transactions? How do we get steady fees across the board? And so I'm kind of excited to see what all of this talent who's entering the job market is going to do. There are so many issues to solve in this industry. And sometimes it takes people who have been operating outside of the industry, who have been building outside of the industry, who have worked on applications that have seen billions of users, who have worked on user experience for the everyday person to come in and look at problems through a different lens. And so I am just excited and curious to see what all of these meta employees who are entering the job market are going to do as I read this story. Zach, I think I saw your hand go back up. Yeah, I want to throw a question to Sam. I know we've seen a lot of stories about sort of the token speculator aspect of this launch. I want to talk about on the the dev side. I mean, what's the vibe? Like, is this pitch to devs, hey, come build here, resonating with anyone? Uh, Is it something that is attracting teams? Or is there just so much dilution among these all L1s that it's hard to sort of get that critical mass? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to look at the, the dev side of this. I have heard good things about Move broadly. So um, Aptos and Sui both kind of took different tacks to the way that they're implementing that technology into their chains. And I've heard, this is broadly speaking, but I have heard good things about Sui relative to Aptos in terms of the developer experience. Um, but they are kind of similar things and they are competing in you know similar turf for similar developers. But Aptos and Sui are both kind of big, you know, backed by these heavyweight VCs in terms of their tokenomics, but also in terms of the incentives that they're going to give to projects to fuel their ecosystem. 
Ethereum did this to an extent, but you saw this to a larger or, or at least more visible extent with something like Solana, where they paid, you know, or I, I shouldn't say paid, but um, where they, you know, would reward grants and other sorts of incentives to developers to develop apps on that chain, on Solana. Now, this was positive in terms of recruiting developers, but left a sour taste in some investors' mouths and some others because, you know, it might incentivize bad behavior, sort of mercenary developers that come in, develop tech, and then leave for the next chain that has a ton of funding, but not much else. So there is going to be a question around whether these developers are actually organic and going to stick around because they like the technology or they just want those handouts. Uh, Zach, I saw your hand back up again. I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's my main question. I'm going to toss it back to you, right? Like, is there appetite for another ride around the merry-go-round, right? Like, are we going to see the same Solana playbook that happened in that massive run-up that that chain saw with a bunch of projects building there, a bunch of TVL being attracted to that chain? Are we just running that back with like these new upstarts that happen to use Move, you know, rather than, you know, Solana's stuff? Like, I don't know. That's my main question. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. My personal opinion is it, it kind of feels like we are kind of running that back. I mean, I, I report a lot on the Ethereum community and maybe to take my opinion out of it, just to talk about what I hear when I talk to those Ethereum OGs who are a little bit more, you know, purist when they talk about these upstarts. And they do have a reason for that um, to kind of like, you know, look up or look down at, at these newer chains because they're so invested in this incumbent ecosystem. But anyway, that out of the way, a lot of these Ethereum people do kind of scoff at the Aptoses at the Swedes at the Solanas before for, you know, exactly what we were just talking about. They would say that developers are not actually going to stay in these ecosystems because that not only is the technology in their view not as resilient, proven, so on and so forth as Ethereum's, but simply the community is not there. So if you're going to build something absent those, you know, VC incentives, you want a community to be there to invest. And SWE simply does not have that. Aptos does not have that as a result of them being newer. And they certainly, by the way, in Sui's case, didn't help get new investors by kind of not shooting down the prospect of a potential token airdrop and then choosing to forego an airdrop. So you, you had a bunch of people who were farming or hoping to kind of farm for a Sui token, uh, you know, prospective community. But anyway, it didn't work out. They just let people buy the tokens and there's good reasons for that in my view, but anyway. Yeah, um, the lawyer, the, you. you know, a lot, lot of legal questions yeah. around whether or not Rob yeah. is prudent uh, in this environment. I will say we did see a presentation from Miston Labs, the main creator of the Sweet Blockchain last week at Consensus. Uh, it looked pretty performant and cool with the early focus on gaming. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Thursday's top story. Yes, indeed. In what threatened to be a rare moment of clarity from U.S. securities regulators, the SEC at the last minute removed what would have been the first formal definition of digital assets as they see them. The proposed definition had been included in a 2022 proposal to overhaul mandatory disclosures for hedge funds, but it was removed before passage with the agency noting, quote, the commission and staff are continuing to consider this term and are not adopting digital assets as part of this rule at this time, end quote. For longtime crypto observers, this is disappointing, but not exactly a shock. And even as the regulator has declined to define what they claim authority over, a U.S. judge has ordered that they respond to publicly traded exchange Coinbase's recent lawsuit asking for exactly that, clarity over what the rules actually are for the companies they're demanding compliance from. 
Jen, I'm going to kick this one over to you first. We've been talking about this type of thing for a long time. What, what, what do you make of these developments? We've been talking about this for a really, really long time. And just as we think we're going to get a little bit of clarity, we wind it back. And so I've told this story on The Hash before. I'm not going to get super into it, but I was at a conference talking to someone who's dealing with a regulator in the US. And they were telling me, you know, when they get permissions from the regulator, they say like, yes, here's a license to do this thing. But this is not to say that if you continue to do this thing, this will still give you permission in the future. The laws could change, the rules could change. And so it's all very confusing. And I, it seems like the SEC behind the scenes just can't make their mind up of what they want to say because they don't know what direction they want to go in. And if they say one thing and give us that little bit of clarity, you know, we may take the reins and run with it. And I, it doesn't really seem like they want that. It seems like we want to keep the water is murky so that they can figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And as you can tell, I'm just very disheartened by it. Zach? Yeah, it's just not so simple, right? There's various types of digital assets and just one overly proscriptive definition of what that may be would open up a whole can of worms for actually useful things that exist because of blockchain technology, right? Are stablecoins a digital asset? Are NFTs a digital asset? Do, can they be defined in the same breath? And I think obviously the SEC may be grappling with this. Some some things just aren't as simple as that, right? So the fact that they are um, taking time at least to get this right is somewhat positive. But yeah, the SEC is trying to do all sorts of things where they're trying to expand the definition of an exchange that could severely hamper the growth of DeFi in the US. And it's really hard to figure out all the many things, all the many fronts on which this battle is being waged. You know, we have so much going on with the SEC now. We haven't gotten to the other part of this story, which is that, you know, they've been ordered to respond to Coinbase within 10 days, right? They sort of initiated this fight with the Wells notice. Coinbase came back and said, hey, we're fighting you guys. They made this announcement at Consensus last week, by the way. And now court is siding with Coinbase saying, hey, SEC, you got to get it together and, and respond within 10 days. So a lot going on in the regulatory battle that's brewing here in the U.S., and it's just a lot to unpack. So the fact that they're punting on this one, hey, maybe a good thing. Who knows? Jen? Yeah, the courts are really pushing the SEC, it seems. When I was reading this story about the court giving the SEC 10 days to respond to Coinbase, it reminded me, I forget which bankruptcy case it was, but the SEC went in, tried to stop the bankruptcy proceedings from happening. And the court said, actually, no, you can't go ahead and do this. And so maybe the courts, the judges are going to be the ones who push the SEC to actually give some, some clarity moving forward. Adam? Yeah, so a couple of things here. Um, on the uh, the story you're talking about where the bankruptcy judge pushed back, that was Voyager Digital. And it's important to note that Voyager Digital did not actually, was not actually able to complete that deal with Binance.us in large part because of the regulatory pressure that was coming on. So that first judge did give them what they wanted in terms of saying, hey, if you guys can't articulate the standard by which you're saying that these people may have committed crimes, then how can I hold up a bankruptcy that affects so many people when you don't even have a, a real position here, right? So that worked with that judge. It was immediately appealed by the government, put on hold, and then the deal fell through because, again, the level of hostility that's coming from U.S. regulators has been really significant. On the, the Coinbase side of things, I think it's really interesting. I, I, I saw a take yesterday on Twitter from a gentleman named Metal Law, who uh, is a lawyer in the space, been operating in crypto for a while, and who I've seen a number of really interesting takes from. And his perspective was that this is the worst possible fight that the SEC could pick because Gensler, in sort of uh, shortly after being appointed, actually gave congressional testimony as the head of the SEC that said that they do not currently have the authority to regulate exchanges on the crypto side of things and that they would need new authorities to do that. So fast forward two years and now his perspective is very different. 
But the perspective from, uh, from again, this Twitter user was that in order for an SEC chairman to go and actually give testimony under oath in front of Congress, there is a lot of paper trail that goes into vetting those decisions. And that to the extent that they, that he did say that under oath, there would have been a lot of sort of background that could be subpoenaed in this lawsuit um, as part of discovery, or, you know, they could be exposed as part of discovery. Um, and as a result of that, it could be very, very embarrassing and then leave the, the SEC with a very difficult to explain position. Why did we think that we didn't have the authority here? And why do we think that we do have the authority now? And more importantly, what were the internal communications around both of those things? Because all of those could be made public. So my expectation remains that this is effectively like a shot across the bow that they do not intend to actually fight. And to the extent that they do, frankly, I'm really anxious to see it. I think we could get some interesting fireworks out of it. Zach? Yeah, the Coinbase thing is going to be super interesting, right? They vowed from the, from the get-go that they were going to fight this one and do so in a very public fashion. They seem to have stood by their word on that one, right? They said, hey, we got served with this Wells notice. We want to let you know. Hey, we're going to respond to this thing. They made a video with Brian Armstrong and Chief Legal Officer Paul Graywall. So they've been taking a very public tack in their fight against the SEC on this one hopefully to the benefit of the entire industry, right? Like we saw this a little bit with Ripple, right? Where it sort of realized that it could sort of be the flag bearer for advancing some of these conversations in its own fight with the SEC, which has dragged on for a number of years now. So Coinbase, I think taking on this mantle as well is going to hopefully force the conversation in a way that might be beneficial to the crypto industry, right? And I think, you know, again, we're seeing the, the beginnings of a long protracted fight hopefully out of which some clarity emerges. Because again, if it's going to be regulation by enforcement, maybe it's going to be clarity through the legal process rather than through the regulatory rulemaking process or the legislative process, which I think is what people in the industry are wanting to see happen as it relates to kind of rather dealing with the, with that devil than with the SEC on the on the uh, executive side. So it is super fascinating to watch this play out with, again, the flag bearer of US crypto Coinbase going up against the US securities regulator for some definition as to what's what. I don't know. Gary could win. Gary could win this ultimately. We'll see. Jen? There's a quote I want to highlight from one of the stories. It's from Anne-Marie Kelly. She's a partner at Mercury Strategies who was a longtime SEC official. She said the SEC is a regulator that requires transparency from its registrants, but it is continuing to withhold regulatory clarity by not defining digital assets. She went on to say, any recognition of digital assets' uniqueness as a novel product weakens their litigation stance that digital assets are securities and subject to the SEC securities laws. So it's interesting that she draws this back to the SEC stance that every crypto asset is a security except for Bitcoin. So a lot of things going on that this could point to. And as we always say on this show, time will tell. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.